Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play. Hi, everyone. This is Madeline Howard, host of the Voices of Aging podcast. I just wanted to give a brief introduction to this episode because it is quite different from anything else that we've ever released. Normally, I am chatting with academics, a lot of them from the University of Minnesota, um, but today I am talking to an artist and fellow podcaster out of New York City. And the connection here to aging is really that um, Greg had a new passion and a career pivot at an older age. And so I hope that comes through in the episode. Please enjoy. This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Greg Lefebvre. Greg is an artist based in New York with a passion for storytelling. Greg's public art career has been prolific. He has completed over 200 permanently installed projects, many in the United States with a dozen in his home of Manhattan. Library Walk at 5th and 41st is the largest work of public art in New York City. It is composed of 96 bronze panels with illustrated quotes from world literature set in the sidewalks of 41st Street, leading viewers towards the front of the Schwartzman Library. It was commissioned by the Grand Central Partnership in collaboration with the New York Public Library. His public art is all about exploring the history or character of the places where it is installed. Greg has a particular interest in telling the lost and forgotten stories from people and cultures that have otherwise been excluded from the national narrative. Greg's experiences in and around the world of art inspired him to create his podcast, The Compulsive Storyteller, where his short personal stories prove the adage that truth can be stranger than fiction. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Madeline. It's very nice to be here. So I know I gave kind of an overview of who you are, what you do, but um, please tell us more um, about yourself. So as mentioned, um, my podcast is called The Compulsive Storyteller, and I am a compulsive storyteller along with my entire family. So we, um, growing up, we would, over over the dinner table when we were still at home, we would all tell the stories of our day and tell them to each other and sort of compete in storytelling. And then once we got out of the house, we did we had the same tradition we would call each other with something interesting that happened that day and at that point i'd be calling my mother and my father my sisters um and, and some extended family members so i would repeat a story a half a dozen times and once you've repeated a story a half a dozen times it's fixed in your memory and you know it's it's there for good 
Um, whereas when most people come home at night and sit, sit at dinner, they might tell a story that happened that day, but to their wife or their husband or their kids or whomever. But then unless it's retold, the story just lost, it's a lost memory within a few days. So that's kind of the compulsive storytelling side of my, uh, my character. Um, and then I've been an artist my entire life, um, starting in grade school all the way to the present time. Um, and my, just a quick story, when I was in kindergarten, first and second grade in a small school that only had three grades, my teachers thought I had some talent, so they set me up in the back of the class with a little easel, and I was the class artist. And while they were doing, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, um, I was painting, and I, I thought it was a great honor and service, but in fact, I got behind, way behind in my studies, and it was a disservice in the, in the long run. Um, and I just ran into a guy who st still remember. He reconfirmed and fact-checked that story. He was he remembered me from kindergarten. So, wow. So you did a, such a comprehensive job of of introducing me. I've got to kind of rethink some stuff. But the one thing that, that I want to say is that, as you mentioned, um, for fifty years now, I've been taking a particular interest in telling these lost stories from marginalized groups, like African Americans and women and. Um, Hispanic Americans and older Americans. And a number of my projects were memorials. And quite often the people who were commemorated were successful older people who had been forgotten and passed on. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of an interesting connection to my, my when I do a series of, of panels. And so um, you mentioned Library Walk, and I, I think maybe I should, if you'd like, I can describe a couple specific panels, which would give your listeners some idea of, of what they look like. Sure, that would be great. Okay, so, um, you know, there's 96 panels. They're all about literature in one way or another. Um, one of them by a, a, is a quote from a woman named Muriel Ruckheiser. Um, the quote is, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. And I, the illustration is I took a, a kind of a line drawing of a molecule with, you know, the lines between those circular atoms, and I replaced the atoms with little tiny open books. And so the universe is made of stories, not atoms. And another panel um, is, has a quote from the French artist Georges Brock, and he said, truth exists, only falsehood has to be invented. And I divided the panel with a diagonal line, and the top left-hand triangle, it looks like sand, and it looks like somebody's written with a stick in the sand, truth exists. And then the bottom right-hand triangle, um, I designed like a really slick advertisement, and that says only falsehood has to be invented. And then lastly, um, there was a, a Rene Descartes had a had a quote meant in a long time ago saying that the reading of great books is like a conversation with the best men of past centuries. And that one I illustrated with a group of men from different centuries. Some of them with togas, some of them knights, some of them with business suits, some of them cowboys and so on. And then I had off to the side of the group, I had a woman standing alone. And and when I take people on a tour of my project, I often sort of ask what they think of that, and most people don't get it. But my intention was to comment on the fact that, you know, it's a conversation with both men and women from past centuries, because there were many women who were writers in the past. So, so that's three of, them, of the panels that are in 
library way. And there's there's another, you know, almost a um, hundred others that um, are there. Wow, very cool. Thank you for sharing at least three of those. And, you know, part of the reason why we've um, invited you on the podcast today, you know, because we're an aging podcast, is that you pivoted to podcasting at age 74. Um, so sort of pursuing um, a new medium, a new passion at an older age. What was that like for you? Was that challenging? How did you know what to do or where to start? Well, I had no idea what I was doing, and I made an incredible number of mistakes. Um, but I wanted to have—I wanted to make the podcast called The Compulsive Storyteller. And I knew I wanted to make it a podcast of short, true personal stories that were fairly short, five to 15 minutes long. I think that's a, a sort of a sweet spot in the listening audience because most podcasts are much longer and they require a much greater commitment of time. So, And all my stories I wanted to be basically from my life and many about adventures I had in both making and installing public art. So I made, as like I said, I made lots of mistakes. For example, a concrete one is the first thing I did was I built a, a big soundproof booth in my studio and I had no idea that there were directional microphones where they only picked up the sound from immediately in front of them and all I needed was that microphone, not a $6,000 um, booth. So that's kind of one of my many mistakes. And I also... I made mistakes at every stage of the process. Um, so let me just outline the process a little bit first. Um, so first I have to remember a story that I want to tell. Then I have to fact check it because I like to try to connect with people who who were there for whatever it was and see if their memory and my memory align. Next, I have to write it and edit the script. Then I have to record it and re-record it. And next, I have to add sound effects and music and finally post the story and hope that people want to listen. And that's actually just the beginning because ultimately, I have to promote the podcast too. And that's a whole elaborate learning experience that's taken me quite a while to, to kind of master. So, um, And all of these things were a matter of trial and error. Given you've gone through this in terms of learning a new skill at an older age or a collection of new skills. What advice do you have for your peers on pursuing their passions? Do you think they should be restricted based on their age or how would what would you say to encourage them forward? <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. First, if it's a real passion, it shouldn't be hard to give it everything you have. You know, totally go for it. Um, next, there's a whole lot of self-help books and podcasts that talk about the importance of maintaining a positive attitude, and I think that's totally correct. And when I first started using more sophisticated technical programs, both in my art and in recording, I was very resentful of the fact that programs kept changing and new downloads would come, and all of a sudden I didn't know what I was doing, and I just had a very negative attitude about it. So as I said, my, my attitude was very negative. And I noticed that my younger friends were very adept at, at um, getting the latest update and figuring out how it works and took a pleasure in upgrading, upgrading you know, the, to the newest program. So my attitude, I had to completely change and rework. And now I've, I've been challenged by and, and beginning to enjoy 
taking a new upgrade and figuring out how it works and experimenting and and mastering it. And so that's been that's been a, a real switch, which has been very successful. Um, also, getting back to pursuing your your um, passion, I would advise people not to do it in isolation, but to network. Um, tell everybody in your circles, your friends, your family, what you're up to. And then don't be afraid to be a little pushy and sell your passion. Um, I guess I could say be passionate about promoting your passion. And also seek advice from others who have similar passions they're working on. It might be a good way to network. And finally, um, don't be discouraged by rejection. So here, here's a little personal story of, of what I did with discouraging rejection letters. When I was first starting out in public art, um, I was trying to get commissions, public commissions, and I had I'd never done one. So I had an enormous pile of rejection letters. And at first, it just made me depressed. But then I decided that once I, once I was successful, I would paper my bathroom with these rejection letters. And I mean, my pile was like six inches thick. And so therefore, a rejection letter became something positive, And I put it in my file and feel good about it. So that was a, a nice little trick. And, and it's funny, now when I tell this story to younger people and say that my, my rejection file was as thick as a Manhattan phone book, they have no idea what I'm talking about. So. Oh my gosh, yeah, I know what you mean. There's even a generational difference that I've noticed between uh, millennials, which I fall into that generation, and, and Gen Z. I think they, yeah, they don't know what phone books are anymore. Exactly, yeah. And the Manhattan phone book, you know, is a very thick phone book, which you'd have to know that if you were, you don't even know that if you were my age. Right. Yeah. And I love that idea of of shifting your mindset and viewing those rejections as something positive and almost a, an exciting thing that motivates you to keep going. Exactly. So. I'm curious if you have encountered ageism at all in any of your artistic pursuits. Yes, definitely. Um, in many different situations. There's a kind of a younger person who calls me pops or old man or listen old man. And that, you know, that's that's hard to take. Um, and the art world has become a uh, definitely a young person's arena. And I had a dealer a while back say to me, I really like your work, but art gallery is really looking for hot younger artists. And also people kind of assume that I'm disabled by my age. So they ask me, are you okay moving that sculpture? Or maybe you shouldn't be climbing a ladder? Or um, do you think maybe your ideas are stuck in the past? And it's it's hard not to be reactive and respond with anger to these, you know, to, to what they have to say. But I try to instead just, you know, go ahead and try to try to sell them on on my accomplishments or what, I, or what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah, I would imagine it's so challenging just to be almost immediately dismissed just because of your age. And it's very easy. You get very sensitive to it, as I think people of other minorities are. And, you know, it. it sometimes people are not even, even aware that they're doing it. Um, but, you know, say lovey. So. And do you... Um, I was thinking of an example of ageism that I was guilty of. And that's when um, when Biden came into office, he was the, it was an awful lot of ageist commentary about him. And I found myself thinking when I was 67 that maybe he's too old to run for his second term when he's, I guess, 82. 
And I realized that, wow, what an incredibly ageist thing to think and how regressive. So it forced me to take a good look at myself and rethink, you know, the way things should be. And also, there's one way that I noticed that's kind of a spectrum of well-known people with the president at one end. At the other end, I put, I put like rock and rollers like uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, uh, who are in their late 70s and, and even early 80s, performing to audiences all over the world. And I think that whole spectrum of much older people who are successful is making people rethink their respect for older people. And strangely enough, there was one rock and roll magazine that used to list musicians that were most likely to die in the next year. And Keith Richards was always at the top of the list for, for a decade. And then finally, they, they just dropped the list because, you know, he wasn't going anywhere. So <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. So. Right. Keith Richards might be immortal. We don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's that's a really interesting point because I I do think public opinions surrounding people like Joe Biden and his age and people like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and their age are very different, even though we're sort of talking about the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah um, I hadn't thought about it that way. So that's, yeah, interesting to consider. And I know... Um, you have a story uh, that we've got time for you to share about a group of older women in Manhattan who collect cans. And so if you'd be willing, I'd love to hear that story. Sure. It's on my podcast, and I'll give you a sort of a shortened version of it. But it's called uh, Tin Can Ladies. And about 15 years ago in lower Manhattan, I began to notice these very old women. 70s, 80s, digging into trash cans for the tin cans that they could then redeem for 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 money, and um, sometimes they would they would work a whole day and have two plastic bags full of tin cans, and they would often have a a broomstick which they would suspend them from either end of, and that's a very common way of behaving in Asia, but it's very rare in, in Lower Manhattan. So, but now it's become much more common, and as I watch these women. You know, they they spent a whole day and maybe they made 10 bucks. And I, I was just very troubled by that. So I uh, I decided to, well, first I was trying, I was thinking about making a film about them. And in doing that, they're, they're very shy. They don't bother anybody. And they're completely invisible to New Yorkers. They're like not even there. Um, and so I tried to make the film, but I they would sort of be aware of me and flee, which I felt bad about. So then I decided... Uh, I would just help them if I could, and I, I called city services, the you know, city services dealing with with um, older people, and they they said to me, well, you know, they're they're a, they're a community unto themselves. They take they're taken care of by their families, and they really don't want help, which I, I kind of didn't agree with. So I, how am I going to help them? So sometimes, so I I was always out looking for them, and I began to recognize some of them as individuals, and. Um, one time, one of them, she was on top of a of a trash can, sort of balanced on her belly. This was a big, tall can that opened on the top, and she fell in, and I helped her out, which she was very thankful for. And then I tried to give her 10 bucks, and she said, no, 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 this is my job. And I, I realized that I was insulting her, so I apologized. But then some of the other people I, I helped um, were very happy and thankful to have 
some financial help. So one night I was, I was actually filming. Um, it was rain, pouring rain, and there was one of these old women who I recognized, and she was um, sort of resorting her tin cans, and I was um, filming her with a forty-five degree, with a ninety-degree angle camera, so she couldn't see that I was filming her. But she was became aware of me, and she just ran away um, with her bag. And I, I I followed her at a distance, and she left her bag by the subway stairs. I didn't. It was raining, and it was crowded, so I couldn't tell where she went. And I thought she'd gone down on the subway and abandoned her bag, which is rare. That's like that's like the treasure. So, but what I didn't realize was she had gone to the median strip of the of the road we were on, and had collected some cans. And as she and again, it's pouring rain. And as she raced back toward me, she saw me and and kind of freaked out and froze. And I said. No, no, no. And I, 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 I sort of called her over and I, I only had a 20. So I gave her a $20 bill and she completely hugged me in the pouring rain, just set her arms and just kept squeezing me. And it just brought tears to my eyes. And when she looked up and smiled at me, her teeth were all, I, I don't want to say rotten, but they were all falling, falling out. And it was just such a sad moment. Um, and that, so that had a number of other experiences like that. And then my final experience, at least that I tell in my podcast, is I was walking up Bowery one day, and there was a much taller than usual older Chinese woman, and she had a bag of cans, and she also had a tin can in the other hand. And I walked up to her, and I took out a tin and sort of stuck it out to her, and she said in perfect English, "What do you want to buy a can?" And I said, "Well, sure." And she said, "Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not selling." I said, "Well, I'm sorry, I don't mean to insult you." And she said, no, you're just doing this so you don't feel guilty. And I said, well, why should I feel guilty? And she said, because nobody does anything about all these folks who are in my position and street people in general. And so I said to say, you know, you're absolutely right. So I said, well, what about, why don't you just take it as a favor to me? And she said, well, you have to ask really nicely. So I said, okay, would you please take this $10 bill as a personal favor to me? And she said, okay, sure. And she grabbed the $10 bill and, and sped off. So that's how my podcast ends. So. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think this leads us perfectly to my last question, which is where can people listen to the podcast? Um, what plugs do you have for us where uh, people can go and, and learn more? Um, so, it's on all it's on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, and so on. Um, it's called the Compulsive Storyteller. We also have a website, uh, compulsivestoryteller.com, and an Instagram, um, I guess, is which is at the Compulsive Storyteller. Um, and also, if you go to Anchor, they have the full series there. But the best place to listen, I would say, is on Apple or Spotify. And what else can I tell you? Um, I think I think that's it. Okay. I have sixty podcasts up to this point. And it's just been, I've just had so much fun doing it. It's been like a, it's reinvigorated my entire life. It's just, it's just a ball actually. So. That is so fantastic. And thank you so much for sharing, Greg. I know our listeners are really going to get a lot out of this episode and hopefully some of them will start listening to your podcast too. Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure and I really appreciate your time and I enjoy your programming a lot. So. Well, thank you. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. 
Follow Voices of Aging and ASIC on social media for more information about the episodes and guests on the podcast and to know more about us as a student group. See you next time.